Welcome to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. In this podcast, there'll be insights around three key areas to mastering the game of life. Purpose, prosperity, philanthropy. Your host, Paul Lowe, the third sector mentor, is the founder of Hearts Global CIC, which along with many other of his charitable commitments, has been responsible for positively impacting thousands of people's lives, particularly young people from disadvantaged communities. Author of Mastering the Game of Life, From Pain to Purpose, and Speaking from Our Hearts books. Introducing your host, Paul Lowe. Welcome listeners to this Mastering Life podcast episode where I want to build on the previous episodes around the mastering, uh, mastering the game of life concept um, and more, more specifically speaking from our heart's book. And from the latter, um, you may recall on a previous episode, I told you my story emerging from, uh, from the forest. And I want to share with you now, if I may, um, a story which is, is quite graphic and... Um, it's not for the faint-hearted. So I almost apologise, and I say almost, because um, the graphic nature um, of some of the, the language, um, it's true to life. Um, you know, this, this, this is real stuff, and this happens and did happen. So there's a kind of semi-apology for, for those with sensitive ears, but at the same time, there's no way of skirting around the reality of, of what does happen in life, and certainly happened... Uh, for this particular individual called John Smudger Smith and his his story, his short story is called Family, Forest and Froth. John's story. I was born and bred in inner city Nottingham, England in the late 1940s as part of a large family. I started school in the early 50s and spent the rest of my life being judged and labelled by people better than me. Often wondering about the Good Samaritan and the old saying that all that glitters is not gold. So perhaps the opposite is true as well, and all that doesn't glitter may be gold. As someone that has spent most of his life being in the system for the vast majority of my life, almost three score years and ten, I am left to conclude that being three powerful and consistent influences in my life, my family, Nottingham Forest Football Club and booze, and they've combined to provide me with pleasure and pain in equal amounts. On my first day at school, my teacher took me into the classroom and into the cloakroom and said, now, now then, this is your coat peg and where you'll keep your coat in your PE bag. And I still recall and remember the startled horror and disgust as I retorted to her, I don't want a coat peg because I ain't fucking stopping. While I cringe now at my crude response, this was normal for me at the time. My upbringing was based upon nothing more than raw brutal survival. At playtime that morning I escaped to visit a nearby pond where two graceful swans were residing. Over a period of time the swans got to know and trust me and I used to feed them on bread that I'd pinched from the local tuck shop. This pond became a haven for me. I'd paddle in it and pretend I was an Indian and I would kill all the cowboys I could. I wanted to be an Indian because all the other kids always wanted to be the hero cowboys and I was different. Then in the afternoon, I'd make my way home and pretend I'd been at school all day, escaping the wrath of my dad, who would invariably be upstairs sleeping off a drunken booze. I remember him once saying he was like Robin Hood. He stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Even in my infancy, I wasn't convinced that his motives were entirely selfless. 
Once, he broke into a stocking factory and nicked thousands and thousands of pairs of stockings, resulting in practically every woman in Nottingham having enough of the damn things to last her months. My mum said my older brothers were out of control, so she had to send them away to children's homes. I live with my grandmother, and I once asked where mum went all day and night, and she simply replied, you'll understand when you're older. Because dad was always in and out of prison, we didn't have much food and much money, so I started stealing. At first, it was just small things from the, sh the local shops, and then I hit on a brainwave. About three streets away from our house was a coal yard, so I decided that I could follow my dad's Robin Hood's example and supply the entire neighbourhood with coal at a cheaper rate. At first, it was okay. Then it became like hard work. I needed an easier enterprise. My conditioning for stealing was ever-growing. I know now I was creating a certain belief system around my identity and this was galvanised by a simple need to survive. I progressed onto bigger things like breaking into shops and offices. By now, the money was starting to come in. I would wait for my grand to go to sleep and then I would deposit some of my ill-gotten gains into her purse. I think she rumbled me though because she'd often assert to me, one day you'll end up in Bagthorpe. Bagthorpe was the name for Nottingham Prison. One morning my mum said I could go to juvenile court with her to see one of my brothers. I was about nine, year old, nine years old at the time and was really excited at the prospect. When we got there, a policeman told me it would be alright for me to go downstairs to the cells and visit my brother. I jumped at the, at the chance, I was excited, but my elation soon turned to despair as the copper said to me, I don't think you understand son. You're being sent away as well because your mum doesn't want you and besides, you keep missing school. I felt so frightened and vulnerable and betrayed like never before. I got to the children's home about tea time and I can still wildly record with delight my first meal of egg chips and peas with jelly for afters. I thought, this is posh because I've never had jelly before. I was moved from home to home and never found love or happiness anywhere. When I was about 13, some mates and I stole 24,000 cigarettes. We each carried 6,000 apiece in large cardboard boxes back to Nottingham on the bus. As we proceeded to get rid of the stash, someone grasped on us, so I decided to go on the run to Chesterfield, which was a nearby area, and I headed for a pub that all the villains and prostitutes used to frequent. I was advised I'd be safe there. The woman who ran the pub was an oldish lady and she used to take clients upstairs. I recall with disgust how some of the men wanted me to watch the performances and some even wanted me to join in, even though I was only a young child. To me then, this was all perfectly normal, or I was led to believe though, because my own man had always carried on this way anyway. The men used to get me drunk and I still remember sipping my first pint of beer through the huge frothy head at the top of the glass thinking, wow, this is good stuff. I could get addicted to it. Eventually, I returned to Nottingham and mum had left my dad. His drinking had become even worse. And because mum was no longer there to see his intimate comforts were met, he started to molest me. He said it would be all right as long as I never told anyone. But I instinctively knew this wasn't right. I felt sickened. So I deliberately got caught on a job to be sent away as far away from possible from my dad. Over the years, the crime continued 
with my early motive of providing mother for Gran long since gone. By now, I was consumed by anger, hatred and a total lack of self-esteem. I was carrying an immense amount of toxic venom towards my parents for teaching me this way of life and setting me on the road to despair and destruction. The realisation that my mum was a whore and my dad was a nonce, brackets child molester, caused me immense suffering, let alone pain, and this self-hatred carried on for years and years and well into my thirties. Then a dramatic event changed my life. I was in prison in the middle of another sentence for burglary when a close friend on the outside committed suicide. I totally immersed myself in victim mode. I just wanted to die, blaming myself for it, for his death because it wouldn't have happened if I'd have been there, would it? Wrong. This misery and suffering continued, to turning to depression. The guilt remained with me for some time until one Sunday, out of total, total desperation, I attended the prison chapel. For the first time in my perceived miserable existence, I began to feel shame about my crimes. I cried over and over and over again with genuine remorse and vowed I would make amends to society once I was free. These formative decades of my life gave me an extremely negative perception of what family life was all about. The events that unfolded over the ensuing years could not have been more contrasting though. Family became the glue that gave my life meaning and purpose. Still with challenges though. I met my, we my ex-wife Alice, who'd already got three children, in 1979 and the relationship progressed to the point where we had our own beautiful daughter, Colette, in 1980. Three years after this elation-filled event, Alice was raped and my responsibility, as I saw it, was to protect my family and seek revenge. I managed to find out where the cowardly scum lived and set about my task and my duty. Upon arriving at his place, I kicked the door in and stabbed him in the balls. I wanted to make sure he wouldn't rape anyone else ever again. And for my act, I got a five and a half year prison sentence, while the rapist got three years for three rapes. Justice, eh? As soon as I came out in 1987, I got custody of Colette because Alice and I had split up while I was in prison. My daughter and I were blissfully happy, although we didn't have many possessions and I had hardly any money to support us initially. I managed to get painting and decorating jobs and was obviously determined that Colette would enjoy a warm, loving and secure childhood, something I'd never had. This continued for years and my daughter had turned out to be a beautiful, well-balanced soul with two kids whom I absolutely worship and adore. Later in life, I met a lady called Carol and the universe conspired to repeat itself and grant us a beautiful baby girl, Shannon. My two amazing daughters, as well as my stepchildren with Alice, have been a powerful force of love and I know without doubt that they have given me a reason to live and a, and a true purpose in life. As a kid, I was constantly labelled as illiterate and would advise no one of my juvenile detention centre holidays to find something that interested me. Consequently, I started researching all professional football clubs in England so that I could better understand my passion around the one that I truly loved, Nottingham Forest. And while I was in prison, Nottingham Forest was my reason for living, along with my beautiful daughter Colette, and I now rationalise this as me creating some sort of identity, needing to be part of a tribe and belong. 
1959, Forrest reached the FA Cup final at Wembley. Every football supporter's dream, and my dad promised to take me. However, the bastard, as usual, let me down and went with all his boozing mates instead. All that was, all that was not lost, though. The guy at the local fish and chip shop gave me a, a load of batter bits to compensate with some bread and butter. Years later, fate ensured I met up with Psycho. Not the forest legend, Stuart Pearce, but the author of this book, Paul Lowe. I gave him that name because of his fearless attitude and his never-say-die spirit. He is unlike anyone I have ever known, including all my Borstal and prison acquaintances. Forrest wasn't the only thing we had in common, though. We both had serious drink addictions and we spent hours talking about our tortured past and how one day we might enjoy a different life. I started drinking at 13 to numb the pain and suffering of my shameful existence. And I know Paul started even earlier at 10. As I entered the twilight of my challenging life, my one big regret is that I missed so many years of my kids and stepkids' upbringing. The legacy I leave, though, as I managed to break the parent abuse and neglect cycle as a result of my years of learning and paying my debts to society, my legacy is has meant my kids haven't had to learn the hard way like I did. I'm so proud of them all and love them immeasurably. And John's wow is never underestimate the power of love. So I think, listeners, we can we can understand the power, as, as the wow says, the power of love. But there's so many lessons in there for me. Uh, I do know John Smith personally, obviously, as he's, as he's uh, um, recounted in his, in his story. Um, he's, he's been labelled. He's been categorised. He's been institutionalised. He's made a lot of mistakes by his own admission. But um, I go back to, you know, the, the top of his story, really, where he set the tone by saying, you know, if all that glitters is not gold then maybe that um, all that doesn't glitter may be gold. And I think that's a question that we all ask of ourselves, you know, who's out there? Who am I truly underneath? And what am I doing to create a legacy? Hope that's been useful, listeners. Till the next time, take care and see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. Drop a line to paul at paullowhearts.com with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at paullowhearts.com or any of his social media feeds under the same name. Remember, mastering life starts by embracing our hearts.